So, the closing verses of 1 Kings 18. And uh, a number of questions arise, really, at, uh, in these last verses. So, for example, verse 40. Was Elijah going over the top here? Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let one of them escape. Was he overdoing things then? Um, and uh, what about I, Elijah's prayer? Why did he have to send his servant seven times before he saw a cloud? Uh, did Elijah really run 17 miles to Jezreel? Uh, what about Ahab? So let's have a look at those uh, questions one by one. So first of all, Elijah, was he over the top in ordering the execution of the prophets of Baal? Of course, when it says here, Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and executed them there, uh, he, he didn't actually wield the sword against 450 prophets all by himself. You know? uh, it's like saying, uh, William I, William the Conqueror, built a lot of castles. Well, no, he didn't. He didn't touch a brick, but he got people to do it. So Elijah ordered the execution of these people. Is this Elijah taking personal vengeance upon these prophets of Baal who have opposed him? Well, no, it isn't. It is an execution in the sense that it is justice being carried out. This is a judicial act. And there are several verses in uh, Deuteronomy in particular where the punishment for false prophets is death. Those who worship false prophets, who turn the people of Israel away from the true worship of the Lord, what the Lord has said is that they are to die. That is how serious an offence it is. And so we see here God's uh, mercy, but also it's his justice. If you want to read that in detail, uh, Deuteronomy 13 is the chapter where you'll see several times this uh, instruction that people are to be put to death if they turn others away from the worship of the Lord. So this isn't vengeance, this is justice. It is God's justice being carried out. <coughs> Excuse me. But then the second question is this. What about Elijah's prayer? Which we see in verses 41 to 44. So the prophets of Baal are out of the way. Elijah tells Ahab to go and eat and drink because there's a sound of a heavy rain. Well actually, literally, no there isn't, not yet. But this is Elijah's faith. He knows that the Lord will fulfil his promise. He promised to send rain, and Elijah knows he's going to. So, can he actually hear it at the moment? No, it's an expression of Elijah's faith that there is rain on the way. This is what Israel has been desperate for. 
he says, a sound of abundance of rain. This is what Israel needed. So Ahab goes off to enjoy his celebration, but Elijah doesn't join him. Instead, he prays. Hang on, you say, I don't see the word prayer in the text. No, but that is clearly what Elijah does as he bows down with his face to the ground. As we see there in verse 42, he bowed to the ground and put his face between his knees. He is praying. Hmm. Does that puzzle you? Why is he praying? He says that there's rain on the way, but he's still praying. Why is he praying? Well, he's praying for a couple of reasons. First, you may remember that the Lord withheld rain to fulfil the warning he'd given through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 11. But then, in Solomon's high priestly prayer in 1 Kings 8, verse 35... We, we read this. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. Now it's true that any repentance by these people was superficial as we find in the ensuing chapters. But it seems that certainly they appeared to have repented and therefore Elijah is confident that the Lord will send rain and that prayer of Solomon will be answered. But more than that, of course, Elijah had received a specific word from the Lord first verse of this our chapter go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth so he's had a promise that rain is coming he remembers Solomon's prayer so why did he have to pray I think the answer is this we have a problem in that we view prayer or sometimes view prayer as a way of sort of twisting God's arm to try and get something out of him which he doesn't really want to give us but you know if we twist God's arm enough then maybe he will bless us but in fact prayer is one of the means by which God chooses to bless his people it's one of the means by which he gives us what he has promised he graciously enables us to be involved in carrying out his purposes. Uh, one writer, Wallace, says this. We are meant to notice in this incident that even though God had already promised to send rain and was going to do so, he nevertheless waited till Elijah prayed earnestly for it to happen. In the Bible, it always seemed to be of real pleasure and value to God to do things for his people on earth if he could first stir up people to pray for these things. So, God 
gives us the opportunity, as I say, of being involved in fulfilling his purposes through our prayers. But why seven times? He had to send his servant up. Seven times he said, go back, go again, have another look. Why seven times? Well, one answer might be that that seven is a, a number of perfection or completion in scripture that might just part of the answer but I think there's something else as well God is not tied to one way of answering prayer so on Mount Carmel where there was this contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and they prayed uh, you know what the the, uh, challenge was the God who answers by fire he is the true God it was essential that the Lord answered immediately Elijah's prayer to show that he was indeed the Lord he had to do it straight away but at other times God wants us to persist in our prayer God is not at our beck and call you may remember a parable that Jesus told and you'll find this in Luke chapter 18 and it's very important that we see the context and the lesson of this uh, it's in the first, 18, uh, first 8 verses of Luke 18 but the first verse says then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart and he tells of a widow who goes to plead her cause to an unjust judge and in the end she is so persistent that just to get rid of her the judge grants her justice now very important to see the purpose of that parable because otherwise it looks as though you know God gets a bit fed up and answers our prayer because he's fed up with us praying the same thing no Jesus tells a parable to teach them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. He wants us to persist in prayer. Sometimes we might feel like giving up because it's been a long time that we've been praying and apparently there's no answer. But God wants us to keep praying to show we are serious. So, in my own case, to the best of my knowledge, two of my grown-up children are not believers. So what do I do? Do I give up? What do you think? No, I persist in prayer. My wife, Beryl, she persists in prayer. We persist in prayer for the salvation of our children. We're not going to give up. And sometimes God wants us to persist and persevere and show that we are serious. So if that's the prophet's prayer, we now get the prophet's answer in verses 44 and 45 finally after he sent his servant back seven times there is an answer and that little cloud like a man's hand rising out of the sea that's all that he needed rain was on the way and so he sent word to Ahab hitch up your chariot and make for Jezreel before the rain comes because he knew that this rain was going to be a heavy rain, abundance of rain, 
a real rain. You, you can picture the scene, can't you? The sky turning black with clouds, the wind rising, and then finally the rain. It's the sort of weather where you, you don't want to be outside. Your umbrella's useless. You're going to get soaked. Reminds me of when I was on a crusaders camp in Switzerland many, very many years ago now. Any of, who knows about who, what crusaders is? When I say crusaders, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Oh, right. Oh, thank you. There is somebody. Yes. Right, crusaders... I don't know how much it's going now. A national union of Bible classes. Um, interdenominational, evangelical. Um, so it was through, through uh, crusaders that I was brought to the Lord. And uh, they organised camps in the summer. And you know how beneficial camps can very often be. So one of these was in Switzerland. You know, real hardship. Um, <laughs> Uh, on Lake Thun, which is one of the lakes. You know, you've heard of the town of Interlaken, and if you know any German, you know that means between the lakes. So Lake Thun is one of those lakes. So on one of our outings, we got drenched, utterly drenched. And the camp leader was sitting opposite me on the train, and he said, there's a certain satisfaction in being so thoroughly saturated that no matter how hard it rains, you can't get any wetter. <laughs> yeah. Right. This was that sort of rain. But it was what Israel needed. Rain meant life. Water to drink. Water for the livestock, including Ahab's precious mules. Water for crops to grow. Rain for everyone. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It was rain for everyone. Ralph Davis writes this in his uh, commentary. Yahweh, that is the Lord. Yahweh then is the God of dramatic intervention, as on Mount Carmel, and of daily provision. Israel's apostasy and divided mind had forfeited these material benefits. Now Yahweh graciously restores them. Yahweh is the God of the spectacular and of the routine, who sends both his fire and food. And he adds this, we forget that the common is special. I think he's got a point there. When we give thanks before a meal, is it routine or are you really be, being thankful for the food that is there on your table? Are you acknowledging God's goodness to you? If he didn't send rain, we wouldn't be eating and drinking. As we sing at harvest, he sends the snow in winter, the warmth to swell the grain, the breezes and the sunshine and soft refreshing rain. And sometimes heavy rain as well. But let's be grateful to God for what we consider commonplace. What theologians call common grace. God's goodness to mankind. And in this country we enjoy more of it than many people do throughout the world. The food on our tables. 
the homes we have, the shelter, roofs over our head, heating, medicine. My word, aren't you glad you live in Britain in the 20th century uh, and not in some poor developing world country? Britain in the past, can you imagine? You know, 100 years ago, they didn't know about penicillin. You know, little, in, little infection could be fatal. Light. Some years ago, we were at, uh, in Northumberland on our holiday. We went to a house called Cragside, which is the home built by the Victorian engineer Armstrong, who did all sorts of things, including weapons. In the, in the Armstrong Sidley aircraft, some of you may know about. That house had the first electric light in the country. It had a turbine installed, first electric light in the country. Can you imagine? You know, where else would we be without electricity? Um, electric light. All these things. Common grace. Let's be thankful. But before we move on from Elijah and his prayer, we've got a remarkable statement to consider that James makes. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. That's James 5, 16 and 17. Yes, Elijah was in many ways an exceptional man. He was a prophet. But he was a man. He was a sinner saved by grace. And James re re refers to Elijah to encourage his readers to pray. Your first reaction, like mine, is no doubt to say, I am nothing like Elijah. But James says, don't be discouraged. That's not w w the point that he is making. Elijah was a man and he prayed, and we too can pray to that same God. So here is Elijah, an intercessor, praying on behalf of of the people of Israel and receiving the answer to his prayer we have a far more glorious intercessor Lord Jesus Christ who as Isaiah wrote bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors that's for you and for me he bore our sins on the cross and he continues to be our intercessor at God's right hand. Even tonight as we are here, Christ is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. To intercede, it means to plead for somebody else. Jesus is there in heaven pleading on our behalf, praying for us, representing us before his Father. Are you able to say with confidence that this night Jesus is interceding for you because you have come to God through faith in Christ? Is that your experience yet? I hope so. So we've had the prophet's prayer, the prophet's answer, and then the prophets run. Wow, this is a feat.
From Mount Carmel to Jezreel, it's about 17 miles. So did Elijah not only run that far, but he managed to stay ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way. Now people are affected by conditions. The sight, I mean look it's lovely out there at the moment, sight of blue sky and sunshine, especially in winter, gives you a lift to your spirits. I, I heard a, a zoologist say that high pressure has a physical effect on us as well. I, I don't, I've never seen any proof of that, but, but you wonder. When you've got blue sky and sunshine and warmth, is that purely psychological? Or is there a physical effect on us as well? I don't know. Anybody wants to know when he said that, I can tell you afterwards. But your mental state has an effect on your ability to work, the mood you're in. All these things affect us. Adrenaline has a huge effect, doesn't it? You're into extra time. It's a, the scores are level. And then this footballer who is out on his feet puts the ball in the net and suddenly has the energy to sprint back to the halfway line and fling himself into his coach's arms. Wow, what adrenaline does. So it, do, do any of these things explain Elijah? No, they don't. What we read is this. The hand of God came upon him. 46. The hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Girded up his loins, he tucked his cloak into his belt to free his legs so he could run. He ran 17 miles ahead of uh, Ahab's character pulled by a team of horses. So, do you believe that? And surely, the God who was able to answer by fire on Mount Carmel is perfectly capable of equipping in a spectacular, supernatural way his servant, the prophet, to run ahead of the chariot all the way to, to Jezreel. It was an unusual feat of endurance, of course. But if you don't believe that, then you probably don't believe anything else in the story of Elijah either. You probably don't believe that he was fed by ravens by the brook. Kishon. You probably don't believe that the widow of Zarephath's flour and oil didn't run out all the time. You probably don't believe that the widow's son was raised to life by Elijah. But you know that is serious if you don't believe those things. Because these are not fairy stories. These are historical events which are written for our benefit, for us to learn from. They're written for our instruction. But they're unusual events. So why on this occasion does God enable Elijah to run 17 miles and outrun a team of horses? I believe the answer is this. It lies in, in Elijah's office. He was a prophet. 
He was the Lord's representative. And what's happening here is a twofold message to King Ahab. And the first part of that message is you don't have to be Elijah's enemy. Elijah is running with you. He's prepared to be your friend. And it's a message to Ahab. As I say, Elijah doesn't have to be his opponent. Elijah's not sitting there putting his feet up on Mount Carmel saying, hooray, you know, we've got rain at last. No, he's running beside Ahab to give him a message. It's a parable being acted out to Ahab. Elijah can be your friend. They can work together to carry out the reforms needed in Israel. Oh, but secondly, Ahab's being taught something else. Because I said he's running beside Ahab. Actually, that's not right. He's running ahead of Ahab. Ahab needs to learn that he must follow the word of God. Elijah is God's representative. And so this parable is being carried out in front of his chariot. Ellsworth writes, If Ahab desired to have the blessing of God upon him and to avoid catastrophes such as drought, he must learn to follow God's word with his heart and mind, even as he followed Elijah in his chariot. It was his responsibility as king of Israel to follow that word for himself, and to lead his nation to follow it as well. So here it is. Decision time for Ahab. Will he follow Elijah? Will he follow the word of God? Or will he not? I said in my introduction, what about Ahab? Perhaps a better heading would be, what about the grace of God to Ahab? This is incredible, isn't it? Consider Ahab. His record as king is appalling. Do you remember what it said? I think at the end of chapter 16. He continued in the sun the sins of Jeroboam, worshipping the two golden calves. Oh, but that was trivial compared with what he did next. He married Jezebel from Sidon absolute pagan Baal worshipper set up an altar for Baal he's the king of God's people what was his big concern when it rained Jezebel's putting the prophets of the Lord to death and Ahab lifted not a finger to stop her but he sent out Obadiah to see if he can find some grass for his mules this man is dreadful and yet, in spite of all this, God gave Ahab an opportunity to repent, to turn back. That is the grace of God. He could make a fresh start as king, working alongside God's prophet. Ahab didn't deserve that. But neither do you or I deserve the grace of God. Grace is totally unmerited you may not have committed the sins of Ahab and I hope that none of you have come anywhere near committing the sins of Ahab but I'm sure that you like me have not loved God as you should have done 
that you, like me, have not lived up to your own standards, let alone God's standards. And most people have no concept of sin. They think of sin as one or two blatant transgressions, you know, they've not robbed anybody and they've not killed anybody and so they think they're okay, they're not sinners. They're wrong. On the other hand, there are some people who are so aware of their sin and their sinfulness that they don't believe that God could possibly forgive them. And if you're one of those tonight, you think, you knew my life? Yeah, but think of Ahab. If God could grant repentance and faith to Ahab, and sadly Ahab didn't come to faith, but he could have done, God gave the opportunity. You're nowhere near Ahab's league as far as sin goes. And God will forgive you if you turn from your sin and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he died on the cross, to pay the price for the sins of all who have put their trust in him, however big or small they think their sins are. So, what do we say in conclusion to all of this? Number one, be persistent in prayer, like Elijah was, like that widow in the parable in Luke chapter 18. Don't give up praying for something just because God hasn't answered your prayers yet. Be grateful for all good gifts, God's good gifts. The spectacular ones, you know, the really big blessings. Praise the Lord. And then the everyday things as well. Be grateful for all that God has done for you. And remember to exercise faith in Christ for salvation and in the word of God. Because this word is true.